Welcome to the Humans of Hospitality podcast. I know so many of you listening to this show love your local bar, your local restaurant, maybe your local hotel, and have so many fond memories of time in hospitality businesses. This is the podcast where we get to chat to the human beings behind the scenes of that industry. Maybe the chefs or the bakers or the coffee roasters or the gin distillers or the craft brewers or the entrepreneurs, but all doing an amazing job of making sure that hospitality stays interesting and the big dull formulaic brands do not take over our high street please enjoy the show in this week's conversation i'm going to take you back in time when beautiful tall ships crisscross the sea to deliver foods we couldn't grow ourselves hey you might be thinking i'm describing the 18th or maybe the 19th century but actually i'm only turning the clock back by a few months when a former herring logger called the gallant sailed serenely into new haven with a cargo of olive oils almonds and sea salt This program is about the amazing groups that have an impressive vision to transport food and drink across the oceans and to our plates in a way that is not only kinder to the planet, but in the case of Sail Cargo Southeast, also supports community groups who benefit from being out on the ocean. Plus, they give hospitality businesses like the Herb Kitchen brilliant stories to share about their wind-powered ingredients. You'll hear from Dan Cuss, co-founder of the Herb Kitchen, later in this programme. But first, we meet Dara Thompson, co-founder of Sail Cargo Southeast and the Sailboat Project based in Sussex. Dara Thompson, thank you so much for uh, letting me invade your, your personal and your workspace to come on the podcast. Thank You're you. very welcome, Mark. Uh, can you just explain where on planet Earth are we, please, Dara? Uh, we're in Brighton. We're in a housing co-op in Brighton, off the side of which our office is built for Sailboat Project, our workers' co-op. And uh, it's a stonkingly hot day. It is, isn't and it? And we found yeah. the coolest room. Yeah, it's is. roasting out there. <laughs> Hottest day of the year so far. And uh, I'm in I'm in sunny Brighton. So um, thank you for sparing the time. Really looking forward to to learning. Today's is uh, it's going to be a fascinating conversation. So all about um, sailing, which I used to do a lot when I was a kid. Great. Um, but also, yeah, how, how our kind of produce and cargo gets uh, moved around the globe. So really looking forward to coming into the details of that. But I always like to go back and, and find out how these journeys started a little bit, I suppose. Um, so certainly community organizations, community projects, that's something that you've been involved with a long time, I think. How, how did that start for you? What was your first experience of, of community projects? Oh, that's, that is a long time ago. Um, yeah, for me personally, um, living in, uh, in Yorkshire after uni, I got involved with lots of different kind of community activism, environmental housing stuff. And that kind of led to a route of um, getting paid work, basically, and ended up um working, supporting different community groups to kind of get themselves established, work out how to get funding, how to plan their work. Um, And that kind of uh, then led to working with different refugee community organisations in Manchester. Um, I'm quite a visual person. I quite like visual things. So I designed quite a few resources with groups, um, like how to set up a refugee community organisation kind of thing, but do it really visually, obviously working with a lot of people with English as a second language um, and threw myself into loads of that kind of work, really. Amazing. Uh, How long ago was this? Oh, this was like uh, 97 to okay. until I moved down here, which was 10 years ago, which was like 2009. Yeah, yeah. So, so 20 years ago when yeah. it all started. And lots of useful stuff to learn from that experience from lots of other skilled people about how to set up and run a small community organisation, basically. Excellent. Okay, well, we'll come on to what that <laughs> now means. Uh, but but then at some point, there was also a, a leap into uh, an interest in sailing and, and water sports. Where did that come from? Well, I'd been living on my narrowboat up in Yorkshire, and a um, few of us went off on a sailing course in the Western Isles of Scotland and were completely bitten. It was absolutely amazing experience, like wild nature. Uh, we all were fairly familiar with sort of being on the water a bit in engines. And it was quite a rough weekend and there was a gale. And the, the, the guy, Robert, our instructor, was like, well, you, you're quite a good bunch. We'll go out into a little bit of it. And it was just really awesome. And uh, I just, from then on, was 
really hooked on the idea of of sailing and living on an island like a way to to get around really and explore that's an unusual way of selling it to you i remember being out in a gale on a sailing boat once and just puking for two days and thinking I, i'm never going to go on a boat again but that actually encouraged you I, I, to i did uh, puke quite a lot on that, really? that particular day and you still and liked it bloody knuckles and everything but when you're with a bunch of mates who are looking after you and like that sense of what you can achieve like we got from a to b past all these rocks with all these waves and stuff it was amazing and then it just sort of cleared that obviously robert our instructor like really knew his onions and okay. uh, was looking after us but uh, we ended up at the end of that day at uh, the top of Jura the Isle of Jura the Gulf of Coral Reckon and watching all that I mean wow. just nature in yeah. its most awesome kind of Stunning. setting and uh, I've got to ask quickly because I always wanted to try and convince my wife when I lived in London that we should live on a narrow boat on the Thames that was always my dream how, how tall are you Mark? she wouldn't <laughs> let me yeah yeah not very but uh, 5'10 is that part of it so what uh, life on a narrow boat how long did you live on a narrow boat for? 12 years did you? what's yeah. it like? Uh, I'm going to try and use this to convince my wife or maybe not. <laughs> uh, for me, it worked really well because I wanted kind of a base, but I knew I didn't want to be settled in any particular town. So that's that was the selling point for me. Um, it, back then, it was really cheap and affordable. You just, you know, it was quite a good community and you kind of, you need something done. You kind of work out how to do it, really. Um, and I guess it te- taught a lot of skills about being resourceful and the kind of stuff that you do need when you're at sea because there's no garages or service stations out there. You've kind of got to look after yourself. Yeah. Um, and was it one you could actually move around or was it static? Yeah, no, I used to travel a lot. I used yeah. to winter, uh, winter in kind of either Leeds or Hebden Bridge, places right. like that. But every summer I'd go traveling around Amazing. Leeds and Liverpool Canal. And because the transport systems around West Yorkshire and Great Manchester is so good. Wherever you leave your boat, you can just be in the city in like 20 minutes and go to work. On your push bike? Uh, no, on the, on the metro. Oh, on the metro. Yeah. I was just thinking you can't have a car on the back of your canal boat. Can I you? had a bike. <laughs> okay. I had, a, I had yeah. a friend who uh, had built a little hitch and had a motorbike hanging off the back of his. Amazing. So it was quite good. Nice. Yeah, no, I, I, I love the idea of yeah, being able to be uh, that nomadic, I guess. So... Um, that feeling of being on, out on the ocean, you, you've you ended up kind of using that to work with all sorts of people from, you know, dementia, mental health, just kind of team building and stuff. What is it about being out on a sailing boat that kind of creates the environment that, that helps with those sort of issues? Well, however much you've got going on, and often I'll start when you go out, especially if like first mate on a trip, you know, I'm not responsible for everything. You're still playing on your phone, you're sending out social media stuff it starts to drift away especially when the signal goes but it's it's all encompassing um and that's not just when it, it's full on or rough just when it's a lovely day it's all encompassing trying to make the boat sail to its best um just getting into a rhythm especially on a passage getting into a rhythm of just eating and sleeping and doing the jobs that need doing it's very settling and uh with a lot of the groups we work with who have different mental health issues or levels of anxiety or just like crap going on in their lives to just have a bit of time away where you're not going to see any you're not going to see a billboard you're not going to see traffic you know it's just a completely different world and it only has to be you know a mile or two offshore and it feels like you're in another world really yeah amazing okay we'll come on to the the effect of that a little bit in a minute but um what was the trigger then so you moved from yorkshire down to uh, brighton 10 years ago why yeah well brighton seemed to be a better bet than bradford for learning to sail a bit more and <laughs> my friend indra and i um set up sailboat project basically we wanted to be out on the water so you moved specifically to to set that up yeah and um there's uh, various other sort of reasons but um it was um the the thought of we wanted to get uh get into sailing a bit more and uh we knew we wouldn't be able to afford a boat privately so how could we make it work and there must be other people in our position and some of the experiences we'd had have been on some sailing uh, trips where it's quite sort of shouty and macho and blokey and if you don't eat bacon then you're a weirdo and you know even if you read a book you're a bit odd <laughs> and uh, like we wanted to replicate some of the environments we were used to working in where you kind of listen out for each other you respect people's differences or whatever um and uh you don't stand out just because you're vegan or veggie or something so this is what we had in mind surely we, the, we must be able to create something here that we could uh we could work with and that's where the idea started just a chat over a few pints and uh off we went and uh when i moved down here i bought a hobie cat which is one of the crazy little racing catamarans on the seafront yeah. Yeah, Brighton, I know them, know them well. Great fun. Complete nightmare to sail when you're yeah, bonkers. But really yeah. fun. Fast. And uh, and then we bought a fleet of about 30 inflatable kayaks. Did you? And started doing some weekend uh, kind of residentials with different groups of people, just getting used to us working together 
what it's like working with water, because one of the things we thought was potentially a lot of risk. Are we up for this? It turned out we absolutely love it. That was fine. And um, just using it as a tool with different groups, doing, you know, getting people together for a weekend, blowing up these kayaks, paddling on Cookmere Haven, for example, on the meanders and doing various other activities and finding out that it seemed to do quite amazing things to people. And how were you funding that then? This, um, So Sussex Community Foundation definitely were really helpful at the beginning. Um, we got lots of little bits of startup money from everywhere. The main thing was kind of sweat equity. We didn't pay ourselves for right. the first few years. <laughs> sweat equity, I love yeah. that. That's a great term. And, and use that. Well, it's, it's a way, rather than saying I haven't been paid. It's yeah, like, absolutely. Well, yeah. this is what it, it's adding up to. This You can use it as match funding or, you know, build up the coffers so that eventually we could buy off a sailboat. Okay, so yeah, when how long did that take then? When 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 did you get the the first boat, and what is the uh, the sailboat uh, so project? We've had Carrick since uh, for about eight years now. She's a thirty foot Westerly Renown um, um, catch. So she's got two masts, three sails, lots to play with, easy to manoeuvre. Um, she's like a Volvo. A friend describes her as like the Volvo of sailing boats. Kind of pretty sturdy and looks after you. Was pretty good choice, really. Um, and then uh, we got her coded to like the Coast Guard code for taking out fee-paying people. Realised pretty early on people wanted to learn formally and get qualifications. So we went down the route of becoming an RYA, Yachting Association Training Centre. Um, and then it kind of hasn't stopped from there, really. Nice. <laughs> and so now you do that commercially, you run sailing courses for people who want to learn how to sail and get their qualifications, but you also work with, with kind of, you know, groups or people that would benefit from a, from a social community perspective. Yeah. Yeah. We've got two boats now, 30 foot and a 43 foot. Um, we're really busy. They're both out now with two groups of teenagers doing their comp crew and day skipper. Uh, that's our bread and butter that pays the moorings, the insurance, all the core maintenance work. And then on top of that, whenever we can, we try and do these community sales. So we get grant support but we also um use surplus from the sale cargo which we'll talk about and our merchandise and use that to work with groups we've got some relationships with so there's like a esteem youth group in shoreham transcan sport that widens access to tra for trans people in brighton uh we've got open strings music group all these groups that keep coming back to us and uh we try and um give them a little taste of sales just a half day but then if they're into it give them an overnight or a little bit longer and give them a break from what can be quite, you know, busy lives people have got, but also give them some group work skills, build their confidence. It's great for their mental health and well-being. And just then we attract people to volunteer with us. So Maybe. from the school and the community work, people start volunteering. We've got about 40 volunteers in our in our groups which wow. is amazing it's what keeps us going yeah so there's a lot of uh i suppose recognition um publicity i don't know willingness and i think we've got the uh the, the royal family as well kind of talking about mental health issues and one making it you know more acceptable to talk about it but also looking at actually getting back into nature and whether that's kind of in the forest or whether that's gardening clubs or, or sailing clubs that it has such a huge impact and actually you know maybe the the instagram generation screen time social media is causing more mental health issues um have you got any kind of experience of people that you've worked with where you've you've had really kind of good results? Is there anything that leaps to your mind where you're like, wow, thank goodness we were here for that person or that group of people. Otherwise, they'd be in a very different place. Yeah, I mean, uh, some of our volunteers, definitely, you can see that being out in the water is really great for them. We're getting much better at kind of tracking what the impact is on people. Obviously, like, you know, funders want it, but it's really interesting to capture those stories. One that really saves with me is when we were doing our recovery sales uh, for people in recovery from uh, addictions. And uh, we did a couple of overnights and uh, we got brought in by the management and they were all there in this uh, residential centre. And I thought, oh no, what have we done? And um, they were like, Wait, what have you been doing on the boat? It's amazing. Um, so one, one of the participants said that she saw where she used to drink on the beach. She saw her life from a different perspective and it kind of you know, gave her a different perspective on what she could do with her life. We had the managers crying. <laughs> I was crying. It was like, wow, okay, we've got something a little bit more than I realised here. We need to work with this a bit better. So we'll go into groups in advance, prepare them, find out how, because the people in, in places like that and in the youth groups, they're the really skilled people at working with their clients, um, members. Um, we're just giving a little intervention. But if we can line them up to go, look, this, this could be really big, but you need to prepare them for it. 
and then we'll come and do a follow-up visit but we're just doing a little intervention you're you're the amazing people who are working with us day in day out but we think we've got something valuable we can offer um and people seem to get it amazing yeah, yeah. i think it's fantastic and and you know, I'm a big believer in the just just get people outside into nature and it's transformational. Yeah. It's got to be better than giving people drugs and putting on my antidepressants and totally. doing all that kind of stuff. It's like, yeah, we, we invest in the, uh, I don't know, trying to solve the uh, problem or treating the, the effect rather than the cause too often, I think, don't we? So, yeah, just just get people outside. So that alone would be, um, would be awesome and a great <laughs> justification. But it would be odd probably that we were just talking about this on the, on the Humans of Hospitality podcast. Because this fundamentally is about, is about our food and our drink and restaurants and where, where you know, anything to do, I suppose, with where our food comes from. Um, so sail cargo off of the back of this <laughs> randomly. Most people would have, a have thought I like sailing, but kind of gone and got a job and kept it as a hobby. Some people then go and create a business teaching people to sail. Very few people then go, ah, look down there. There's a load of empty space. Where does the uh, where does the sail cargo idea come from? Well, our, one of our core founding aims was about widening access to the sea. So that's what we've kind of talked about. But it was also about sail transport of people and cargo. So sail transport people just to clarify is people <laughs> their own free will um using sailing as a way to get around without flying um and the idea that goods could be moved around as well um and reduce that environmental impact so uh when i was doing like environmental activism in the 90s there was a kyoto protocol in 1997 they totally exempt flying and shipping from it um because they couldn't agree which country was eligible for the the emissions and yet um Global shipping, I can't remember all the facts off the top of my head now, but has a huge, uh, significant amount uh, contribution to global CO2 emissions, but is exempt from that protocol. So they just burn any old stuff, bunker fuel. And the, the industry is trying to sort of wise up, but it's all voluntary code. And it's it's like, well, what what can we actually do about this? Um, you know, a lot of our food is moved, not, not huge distances, but is coming on lorries. Is there anything we can do with the, the fundamental systems um, and I'd been following for a while a thing called the Sail Cargo Alliance, which we're now part of, and watching these different ships come online, um, some of whom were uh, restored old vessels, some of whom were new build, like the Greyhound, uh, which were then starting to move cargo about by sail with their sailing passenger activities. Um, and I'd been found that very appealing, but we were quite busy setting up the centre. Eventually, in the autumn of 2017, made it down to a Sail Cargo Alliance meeting in Douarnenez. It was a room full of about 45 people, you know, captains and producers and brokers. And there it all was, all sort of bubbling up. And what I took from that meeting was there's a lot of ships and there's a lot of other ships coming on board. There's a lot of great products. They're not shifting them enough. And maybe rather than playing with a new boat, what we need to do, based in Brighton and Hove, is tap into a good customer base and start with that. So that's basically what we've been doing the last two years. Um, while we do have our own plans for our own vessel, hopefully crewed by some of the community members we work with, what we've been pushing the last two years is bringing in some of this amazing stuff, olive oil, olives and, and the almonds and the wine, and just trying to get that word out to people and sort of um, normalising it, really, which yeah. we're sort of getting close to. Okay, well, we'll come into the detail on some of the products to start with. Um, I, I did uh, hear it was quite amusing that you tried to get to that uh, meeting by uh, by sailing over there, didn't you? But that didn't really work out, is that right? Yeah, well, we wanted to take our boat, uh, Jalapino, that we'd just taken on, a uh, nice fast boat, and uh, there was a, it was pretty gale conditions. But we, we, we plugged on until about um, not far off Portland and decided to turn back. It was a little bit too punishing, yeah. which was a shame. But we had a boatload of six of us on board all to go down to Duanane, but in the end, I... Just shot over on my own on the ferry. Oh, really? Okay, you did have <laughs> but to. But we were determined to get there and find out what was going on and get a yeah. bit more involved. And, and quite an eclectic bunch of people, presumably, in there. You had you had all oh, sorts yes. from the uh, <laughs> from the captains of the boats through to yeah. the suppliers through to the brokers. Yeah. What yeah. was the, what was that sort of meeting like? What was the energy in the room? What sort of people were there? Well, it's just amazing, really. I mean, there's there's uh, you've got kind of your originals, I guess, like the Tres Hombres shipping who've been taking their boat Tres Hombres down to the Caribbean for about twelve seasons now, bringing up rum and cocoa and everything. Um, you know, some amazing people who've got some real vision um, and lots of uh, strong personalities and uh, people are really, really committed to, because uh, it's really hard work to make this happen. There's like a lot of strong commitment, really. You know, not only, if, especially if you've got a large boat 
that you're restoring or building from scratch, that's a whole project in itself, really. Yeah, because did I read, was it, is it Tres Hombres that's got, is it 1870 ship or something like that is the year it's from, or is that one of the other companies? That might be there. yeah, they're, they're, I can't remember how old Tres Hombres ship is, but their other boat, Nordlis, is something like about 1870, built that's in Isle of Wight. Wow. Um, so, you know, as you can and imagine... still operating, uh, I'm going to say, use the word commercially. I don't know. We'll find out on the yeah, viability and both of those boats. But... They don't have an engine. They never had. That's amazing. So there's, there's a, lot of, uh, yeah. a lot of skill involved in there. Great way of, uh, of keeping them used. Um, so these people are motivated, what, predominantly by, you know, how to transport cargo in a way that doesn't have an impact on the environment. Is that where it starts from? Or are they motivated by just wanting well, to spend it, their life at sea and how can they fund it? What's obviously, it? everyone's got different different things that all add up. But I think uh, in the Sail Cargo Alliance, it's about having uh, a climate solution. You know, right. people now talk about climate emergency. They're kind of getting the, the, um, the strength of what's going on is starting to hit people. But... Um, it's been the writing's been on the wall for quite a long time. You know, I've known about it since I was in my early twenties. Yeah. You know, um, and I think people are motivated to do something practical, uh, a practical solution that people can get involved in. And the way I think about it as well, if we are going to hell in a handcart, which is kind of what the writing is on the wall, we may as well have some fun on the way and learn some new skills and meet some new people rather than just. Um, despairing yeah. you know and, and, it, and is the is the primary impact of uh i suppose our our network of ships and moving cargo around the world is that predominantly a burning fuel issue or is there other sort of pollution that they're creating and problems they're creating do you know um what with the big shipping yeah. oh god there's all sorts of issues with it i mean from a, a point of view of a sailor in a solent you know they dredge the dredge the channels so the largest boats in in the world can get in what impact does that have on you know there's marine conservation zones but if it's large amounts that's been dredged what does that do to to you know uh, whether it's where fish breed or eel grass or any of this stuff who knows it, there's major impacts all over really but then it's a systemic thing as well though isn't it so you're bringing in large containers full of loads of of stuff that we might not necessarily need you've got really large systems like the big new docks at tilbury you know massive infrastructure is is that really an appropriate way to go really um yeah just consumerism in general presumably so just i don't know plastic containers full of plastic toys coming in from well, china that consum- get put in your in your cornflakes there or? is the consumerism aspect but it's the business as usual aspect as well which says that we have to have continued ep- economic growth yeah and if we double 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 all the time or even go up by two percent all the time there's finite resources it won't work it just won't work we will run out of time and space for all this stuff um so if you see economic well-being of a you know, of the country based on continued growth, it's going to fall off the perch. Yeah. Whereas if you see it as do people, are people getting what they want? Um, not maybe what they want, but what they need. Um, are they happy with it? Do, does it, you know, fulfill them in the right ways? Um, I think it's, you've just got to recalibrate what, the economy is and who it's for really so i would presume then and tell me uh, is the cargo (laughs) alliance more about you know rather than than transporting stuff we don't need like small plastic toys that get sold on amazon uh for kids and then used once and thrown in the bin and fancy dress costumes and all that kind of like highly disposable rubbish now that we seem to uh seem to go through is it more about transporting great food and drink i think there's different things in different places so if you look at there's a project down in um in the Polynesian islands that's moving stuff around because the big ships just aren't coming there anymore, uh, fuel costs and everything. Um, and that could be, you know, moving, moving house, moving, bringing a motorbike in, you know, that's just fundamental survival. Um, and then you've got other boat projects that deliver, um, like, uh, medicine to, to areas where there's, um, like in, um, in Indonesia. And then you've got the stuff in Europe, more close to the home that we work with. I think, yes, it's about kind of good quality products. But the way I see it is things we can't grow on these islands that I'd still quite like to have. So olive oil isn't essential as in the end of the world if it's not there. But it's just down the road in Portugal and Spain. It's not too far away. It's not going to go off if it takes a week or two to get here. We can't yet grow it in these islands. So it seems really sensible to try and bring it here. But then you get to the next level. If we're moving more towards a kind of a more plant-based diet for people in terms of um, impact on the planet, then does it make sense to bring loads of lentils in from China? Or are there other kind of high-protein 
plot um meat substitute not i don't mean like you know fake sausage processed rolls, stuff but, yeah, but yeah. um Just actual ingredients yeah. that are growing in um in spain and portugal for example and that's something like one of our volunteers karen is looking at um is a different kind of if you just look at like chickpeas for example well maybe they're a lot cheaper and easier to get from china but if there's something like a chickpea that does a similar thing but it's called looks slightly different but they grow loads of it in basque country well let's get that in yeah um, i find it amazing that, that that things like lentils and chickpeas and certain dried beans are literally a, a global commodity that are stored crazy, in warehouses yeah. sometimes for three or four years before they get shipped around the world but it's not an expensive product you know just pay a little bit more and have something that's that's fresh and from that year and yeah if you can bring it in by ship without any emissions directly from the farmers we sounds re- exciting i've never heard of it but i think this is a such an awesome uh concept well we get really used to like if you look on most kitchens you're gonna have a well some kitchen you're gonna have a jar of red lentils or your jar of chickpeas some sort of standard things and they're only standard because of the global food industry has gone lentils are easy they make us good money chickpeas are easy they make us good money there's all sorts of weird stuff everywhere i mean you know i grow fruit in the garden that you don't see in the grocers um this should be more normal. Definitely. There's a company called Hobbidots, actually. I need to get, have you heard of Hobbidots? Yes, we've got their baked beans. Yeah, and yeah, I haven't, um, I need to get them on the podcast. They're quite yeah. a way away. And again, but, uh, like that's a good example. They're not baked beans. If you want beans on toast with a hangover, they're not really baked beans. Yeah. But they are they are beans in sauce in a tin that can be used for your dinner. So yeah, just and they do a range them. of like, you know, awesome grains and pulses and stuff that we're, yeah. we're kind of getting lost that we can actually grow in the UK, which totally. I think is exciting, but you can still sail them down from But there will always be things, uh, at least for the next few years, that are going to be difficult, like olives, almonds, yeah. uh, all these kind of things. Yeah, I, I run restaurants and we try and buy local and we support the kind of concept of buying within sort of 35 miles and we're surrounded by the ocean on one side and the land on the other, so there's not much we can't get. However, you would get board of kind of you know butternut squash and pumpkin Certainly. at certain times of the year and you miss having some decent salad and some tomatoes and stuff so there there is stuff definitely that uh yeah you want to be want to be bought in in january and february i guess and it's getting back into seasonality as well so i was really excited a few weeks ago when there was sweet corn in our grocers and i was like it's from the uk and it's a really early crop this year because of climate but there we go brilliant i can have corn on the cob um seasonality um okay the olive oil will keep keep for a year but the idea that a ship arrives at a certain time get in and buy what you need for the six months it's kind of getting us back into those sort of rhythms i think and it's fun it is well. yeah no it's it's exciting it's great so um it, it's uh, the sale cargo cargo alliance is global is that right um yeah it's predominant i would i would yeah there's the most of the ones i know about are in kind of northern europe but they're going down to the caribbean as well there are other people uh, like Sail Cargo Inc. that are building a massive boat in Costa Rica. You know, there's all sorts of contacts everywhere. Um, have, a look, have a look at the Sail Cargo Alliance website and see all the different people. Yeah, we'll have a look. So when you come across them, and yeah. uh, what's the, are they already supplying the South Coast or was this all, all this stuff being moved around but there was no real market here? Or? Well, there's been a lot developed over the last few years. So um, one of the sort of key people that we work with is uh, New Dawn Traders with Alex Geldenhues, who's set up the kind of concept of uh, port allies in different uh, coastal different ports um and the idea that she's also developed of community supported shipping so we see uh that you've got the producers you've got the ship linking them with people who are their customers but they're also more than that because we're asking people to pay up front before the voyage like a crowdfunding thing to help make it all happen so there's a lot more invested in it really um and there's a lot we've learned over the last couple of years. There's some new port allies coming on who uh, we can give a lot of support to. Like here's ways, here's ways to approach ports. Here's ways to communicate with your customers. You know, we've got a very uh, 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 detailed kind of um, spreadsheet now of all the different uh, products that can come up and uh, different containers that work for different people. Big 30 litre tanks down to little kind of uh, five litre boxes and and everything and getting more into bulk buying of different products so it's getting quite complicated now i bet it is yeah yeah so a port ally is somebody who who's kind of a network of people who can kind of coordinate the, the produce coming into their particular part of the coastline is that the yeah. idea? Or? well so you've got a ship coming in sailing boat uh it's not normal um so the keys in most places are going to be like really big for big ships um even the small big ships are big um or it's a marina for yachts and, and motorboats so how do you put in a 46 meter sailing vessel 
they're, they're going to be far too big for the commercial quay and the port won't want members of the public crawling all over it. If it's in a marina, it's taking up one whole pontoon. Um, how does that work? Um, and it's convincing everyone that it's worth having a go. So the last, the one we had a few weeks ago in New Haven, it did go really well. But what's the most important thing for us about it is that it's it can now just be repeated. We've got kind of a pattern. But to get to that point, there's an awful lot to to work out. You know, if, you know, you start having conversations, food food uh, standards, trading standards, border force. All these people pop their head up. Some of whom just want to check that you're not like totally off the scale, but also um, fair enough what they're doing, checking the quality of everything. But they're quite onerous. Uh, it's quite onerous for the amount of cargo that you're mm. talking about, but it's the groundwork that needs doing, really. Yeah, because there's a there's a customs process presumably going on there. Then is there that it has yeah. to be? Has to be don't even checked. mention not being part of the EU because then that brings in a whole add a complication. Yeah. So these guys having to pay duty then when it comes in is that? Uh, so should um, we just ignore that question. <laughs> um, there's different different things for different different products really. So with the the alcohol, obviously that's that's very involved. So yeah. Shisto wine yeah. to work with deal with all of that deal with bonding warehouses and everything uh when it comes to the olive oil there's all sorts of things there because there was a bit of a scandal about organic olive oil being diluted and everything so there's all sorts of stuff there but that's all that the producers have all the paperwork it's just a lot of it is just having the, the right paperwork and uh being organized yeah um and um with the the small amounts we're dealing with we're dealing a lot with kind of the goodwill of like um you know, harbour masters and port authorities right. uh, to be supportive, really, which they have been. Amazing. So you've got these these allies you work with. When was your actual first uh, direct import then that you'd coordinated? Uh, November 2017, we had uh, the Nordlist come into New Haven with a thousand litres of olive oil. So what's the Nordlist? What's, what's the Nordlist is one of the Tres Ombres ships. It's this uh, one from 1870-odd from uh, built in the Isle of Wight, engineless. So that was a okay. bit of... Uh, an issue because we had to arrange a tow into the final. And where final did it come bit. to? Into New Haven. Right. On the big commercial quay, uh, we couldn't have customers alongside, you know, it, it, and it was a foggy day. And But it was it it was quite dramatic and it was great to see her arrive. Uh, they sailed right into the breakwater and then took up the tow. Wow. Um, yeah, it was quite quite some sight. And, and this was one then that you'd coordinated? Had you, had you pre-sold yeah, the produce? Yeah, well, working, working with New Dawn Traders and with the producers down in Portugal. Um, but we're, yeah, we'd got people to, um, as much as possible, buy in advance so that we could commit to that order. We'd fronted it quite a lot as sailboat. Um, and people then, we had to, you know, distribute the, the products to them. And that, they were plastic, five-litre containers of the Regado family olive oil. Um I can't, I can't remember if we brought olives in that first time. I think it might just have been olive oil. Totally on trust. Um, I'd met Alex a few times. Um, and one of the first thing I did when I got on the boat, I had a baguette with me. And I said, give me one of those tubs of olive oil. Broke it open, stuck it on the bread and tasted it. I went, well, thank God it really is that good. Was a bit, that was a bit of luck. It was a lot, of, lot based on trust, really. Yeah. Did you sell it um, all? Yes, that all went, yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, and what was that boat before then? What had it been used for historically? Is it always a cargo vessel? Or? Yeah, it had been. I think it had been uh, mothballed for quite a while before um, Fair Transport took it over, which right. the owners of Tres Ombres and Nordless. Okay. And they do this purely as a, as a commercial exercise in transporting cargo, or is it also well, about they, teaching they're people also, to sail? They've got trainees who are learning to sail. Um, they might, uh, they'll turn up at like tour ship events and get paid to um, be part of that. So it's kind of a mixed bag. Um uh, how they actually make it all work, really. It's a great concept. I love the idea that above deck you can have people who, yeah, either want to pay to be taught how to sail, or might just need to, you know, get some headspace and yeah, get off of yeah. uh, get pause planet Earth for a little time. And then down below you've got cargo moving. It feels like a kind of yeah win-win for all involved, really, yeah. isn't it? Apart from, I imagine, the commercial stress of actually trying to make it viable. And, yeah, uh, I mean, and sell well, the for us as well. I mean, ideally we want to make a surplus, and that's the idea, and that goes into our community sailing fund and means we can do all these activities with the community groups um but it is about doing making a sort of practical climate solution as well yeah. um it brings people together and through it as well we've we've generated interest in 
what we do in the wider sense. We have people volunteering for us. We've got um, amazing offer from Locate Productions who came out and filmed The Last Arrival. We had a proper professional film crew on board. I was sailing our boat around Gallant. We had someone in the water with a fisheye lens. You know, so to offer that is just really amazing. So we're going to be able to tell the story a lot better through some video shorts, thanks to them. Um, people come up and just offer amazing things. Uh, just over the door of the office while collecting olive oil. So it's creating community. So how many deliveries have you had now then? Well, so we had the, the Nordless Inn in November 17. In June 18, we met the Nordless in Brixham and brought um, olive oil and salt and olives up on our boat, Jalapeno. Um, we, uh, there was a shipment to Bristol that we took a little bit from, but that felt a bit uh, disconnected because the ship was in Bristol. So the last one we just had this July... We really wanted the boats to turn up in, in New Haven to stay for a few days, people to pour over it and have a good look around, and it, it all just worked like a dream. And that was the Blue Schooner Company bringing up the Gallant. Okay. Um, really good communication along the way, um, and that was just how we want it to be, really. Yeah, so different different company, but all still under the Sail Cargo Alliance, basically. Yeah, yeah, different company. And yeah. has, it, has, it, has it changed? What was the word I read about how you actually get some of the, the produce to shore sometimes? Oh, cabotage. Cab I love that. Yeah. I thought sort of cabbages when I started reading. I was like, <laughs> cabotage, that sounds like, you know, when my mum used to make Christmas dinner, it felt a bit like a, a cabotage. But yeah, well, what, we, what is that? Well, cabotage is, um, is uh, uh, a legal term for when a large boat comes in from abroad, most countries traditionally wouldn't let it then go from port to port. It had to disembark all its cargo in one major port, probably get a hefty tax, and then go on to some local um, like British-flagged boats who would then do the movement along the um, coast. So Carbo is, is headland in Portuguese. So Carbo to Carbo, headland to headland, cabotage or cabotures. So one of the port allies in Noirmoutier in France, where we get the sea salt from, they uh, call themselves Les Capotères de la Lune. Um, so they're using that name. When we transferred it from Nordlist to our Jalapeno, that's an act of cabotage. So, and we thought that sounded quite nice. nice well. yeah, yeah. So that's what bringing we were it, last year. Bringing it back. So the first delivery that comes over is just uh, is just olive oil. Uh, the Gallant is the most recent one, is that right? Yes. And what, and what came across then? You've extended your range quite a lot. Yeah, right? so um, we had, um, when we did the cabotage, we had some sacks of almonds and what we, we've had some really good support from like sort of food safety in Brighton, the trading standards and everything. But what we realised, it'd make our life a lot easier if we had prepackaged stuff. So... Um, um, what we've got this time, we've got um, caramelised, uh, I keep calling them caramelised onions. They're caramelised almonds, almonds, um, and they're in little 125 gram bags. We've got whole plain almonds in 250 gram bags. Um, and then we had five litre olive oil, but in, in bagging box, like a wine box. So it's cardboard, a thin foil inner, much less packaging, um, much better for the oil because it stays out of the air and the light. And then we have these massive 30-litre steel drums called Fusties, full of olive oil. Um, and they've mainly been going to various plastic-free shops in Brighton and Hove. Um, and sea salt from Noir Moutier. Um, and again, there's they had little cardboard um, containers before with plastic lids. And from everyone's into their plastic-free, so now they've got cork lids. Um, so that's the great thing about this community-supported shipping. The communication goes both ways. The growers can tell us what's working, the impact of drought or what crops are doing better. We can talk about the packaging, what customers want, um, and the ships can say what actually they can carry easily and what doesn't get damaged. So everyone just communicates, really. Nice. I was going to ask then, so yeah, is this being, you know, is, is the sort of stuff you're selling what the consumers say they want or are you still at the point where you need to kind of rely on what the uh, what the producers want to export and if, if if the consumer wants a certain thing how on earth do you go about finding someone who's kind of happy to to stick it on a ship well there, there's an awful lot more products that we could have brought we're just a bit wary of spreading ourselves a bit too thin um and we concentrated mainly on the on the oil there were loads of other products like tapenades and dried fruit and various things but we just thought it for us, we're trying to run a sailing school in the middle of summer, so trying to keep it a bit simpler. I think what we need to do now is go back to our customers some point soon and go, here's like the full range we could be doing. What else are you interested in? Especially some of the bulk things that the, the shops might want. And then um, also this autumn um, in October, we're taking Jalapeno down to Spain and Portugal. Um, and part of the idea is to actually meet the producers 
and see what else there is. So this is your vessels that you use for teaching sailing? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Got much space on those for cargo then? Um, not very much. Not on a long trip when you've got about six people. You've got to think about the weight and everything. We'll bring some samples. Enough definitely. for lunch. Yeah, we'll bring samples. But it's time we met them and met, met the people really and saw what else there is. Um, like I know when I'm in Portugal, one of the things I like is like the dried date cakes they have with almonds in. I mean, to bring them up in that form, people would love them up here. Um, and they're basically, you know, your, your raw energy bars that you get. I mean, that's the original <laughs> raw energy bar, really. So yeah. they're getting from Aldi. You can get Amazing. them from us. Yeah. And uh, great wine as well. I just cycled across Portugal about eight weeks ago. So right. I cycled from the north to the south. Did you go miles. through the Dura region? I don't know where I was, to be honest. I was just concentrating <laughs> on breathing and pedaling. I was exhausted. But uh, I was amazed what a beautiful country it is. And much more lush, much more green than I was expecting. Yeah. But also uh, everywhere we stopped, just really beautiful wine. <laughs> that's the that's probably the main reason why I can't remember. Um, <laughs> so it would be good to understand a little bit more about uh, who buys the stuff, I guess. So uh, sneakily through the powers of uh, wonderful technology, uh, Dan Cuss has joined us Dan hello hi Mark hello thanks for sparing the time absolute pleasure so you, you are uh, co-founder of a uh, catering company the Herb Kitchen is that correct that's correct yeah so I mean what, uh, does, what does that do myself and good friend Will we um, we we were chefs always have been and started working for event catering companies about four years ago um, just because we wanted to get out the restaurants long hours not enough money etc etc um, so Kind of started working self-employed chefs for events, catering companies, thought we could do something better. Um, so we wanted to bring our take from the stuff that we'd learned in restaurants over the years to uh, just to kind of refresh the world of uh, catering and events. And when we can, try to slip in fun little projects called um, stories currently. So chapter one through to 12, each one focusing on um, kind of a different farm, what they produce. And along comes a guest chef from around the world that we want to collaborate with. And it's a kind of an idea, um, shared ethos on kind of wanting to just create a fun event. We sell tickets, people come along and it's a good time. So, so where, where do you host those then? Because you don't have your various own restaurant? Various kind okay. of previously. Um, we did one at Tilling and Wine, so that's near Rye. One in Lewis with a, uh, a couple called Robin and Nakuko. They grow amazing Japanese vegetables. We use them all the time, and I've got some sea buckthorn berries just down there for you to try that were picked about three o'clock in the morning. Wow, amazing. Um, so Thank everything you. we try and do is kind of the ethos goes back to fresh, local, as sustainable as possible. Nice. Um, were you working in the kind of venues before that allowed you to uh, to really care about where you sourced your ingredients and the, the kind, supply chain you use? Yeah, or? kind of. Always had a bit of a say, but this time it's kind of, especially where we are in Sussex, there's just so much produce. We're surrounded by great people doing great things. And why is that important to you, where it, where it comes from? I guess that kind of carbon footprint, locality, freshness of ingredients, it just makes for a better product. We don't have to tamper too much to get great results. So we can rock up to a wedding. Essentially, what we do is mostly wood-fired cooking. So we've got all sorts of great bits of kit from big kind of stainless steel tables with hooks and chains and all these kind of fire pits. There's a lot of meat going on. Some people don't. Don't tell Dara. Fine. Don't get, tell Dara. Get in trouble. Yeah. Um, but we do vegetables as well. Excellent. Um, okay, he's happy. Yeah. <laughs> but the, the whole, you know, the whole vibe is just kind of local. We don't need to do too much to the product, um, and it kind of it just tastes great. And kind of just again, we're you know carbon neutral. The way we want to want to be heading is that kind of you know we want to minimise plastic it's it is tough but anything that can make us be a more sustainable company from the kind of ingredients we use to the people that work for us um just to kind of yeah i think that's becoming uh, yeah increasingly important in in more and more kitchens which is uh, which is exciting um so how do you come across uh, sale cargo then where did you hear about them so a good friend of mine miles who did all the graphic work and logos for sailboat project um, he li yeah, lives in Brighton, um, good friend of mine. So he said, this is something you guys should look at. So we had a look instantly kind of attracted to kind of the sailboat produce and what they do. I did quite a few events with similar restaurants, one called Silo, and they have um, 
they're complete zero waste. They don't exist in Brighton anymore. They've just shifted to London. But their whole ethos was zero waste, use everything. Um, and again, that same ethos of locality. And if you can't use local, like I guess the olive oil, but you want to use olive oil, make sure it's got to you in a in a better way. Um, yeah, perfect. So what do you buy from them? So mostly olive oil. At the minute, we're so busy, we're probably getting for about 15 litres a month and a half. Something, yeah, something like, like that. Something yeah. like that. Like 15 litres. Um, so yeah, regular. Dara's popping in and get about three boxes and that just sees us through really. And it, we, we use it in all sorts of stuff. Okay. So you could buy it from uh, lots of places. We could. Uh, do you get to tell us? So what's the benefit? Because I guess if, are you telling the story about where it's come from? And if so, we are, we try reaction? to kind of incorporate, incorporate that into our menus. So wind powered olive oil or carbon neutral olive oil. People always ask what is wind powered olive oil? And I guess instantly you kind of think of a windmill powering. I'm glad you went there. I was thinking I had a wind powered beans. I'm yeah, trying to think yeah, of exactly. what else. The, so what, I don't know what the side can, effects of olive oil are. But okay, yeah. Something to kind of maybe look at and change because yeah. it's like how do we kind of sum up the way it gets to us and make yeah. it sound cool. So wind powered or kind of carbon neutral olive oil. People always ask the question, why is it this? And we tell the story. Um, people love it. Really? And that's just an element of what we try and do and what we try to incorporate into our menus. Right. Is it more expensive, presumably, than, than some olive oil? it's but... not. It could no? be more expensive. <laughs> Is that going to be bad? <laughs> yeah. Dara, I've just, I've just uh, stitched you up a cropper there. It's, it's great. Now, you know, compared to kind of other oils, it's it, like for us, it's great. We wow. get for a lot. Amazing. Obviously, that's, so. a, that's the perfect scenario where uh, not only is it a better product and it's got a better story, but often the compromise there is that you have and to I pay think, premiums. Yeah, exactly. And I think for us, the story is more important, yeah. how it got to us, where it's come from, the farming process, the people, that a massive chunk of the money goes straight back to the farmer. There's that direct link. There's that story to tell. And I think it's we, again, want to run a business that's just stories. And we can just tell them by the people that are doing the hard work. Yeah, I think that, I mean, it's certainly the point behind this podcast is for me, that's the point of hospitality is, we're, we're, you know, the, those of us on the front at, at the restaurant level or at the chef level are incredibly privileged, really, that all we've got to do is find these wonderful suppliers sure. who dedicate their lives to whatever their niche of their product is. And then as long as we don't screw around with it too much and put it on the plate exactly. in front just, of people. Just leave it. Yeah, and then tell the sure. story. And that's that's hospitality. So. Yeah, and these are the people we want to kind of talk about in the events that we do, because often and they're just in the background digging up potatoes or kind of like out there and on a boat, you know, meeting Portuguese farmers and bringing back this oil. They do all the hard work. We're yeah. kind of, we're lucky to, as chefs to be able to tell that story and kind of relay it through yeah. the food that we cook. Um, so that, it's fun. And I think that story's lost in, you know, one of my motivations for creating this podcast and sorry to some of the listeners who will have heard this before, but uh, you know, it, it, the, the growth of the, uh, of the chain restaurant, I suppose, and losing the stories, losing the connection. And, and it's a tough industry, you know, hospitality, the margins are super tight. Mm. Um, and it, you know, it's great to hear that, that this olive oil is at an affordable price because all too often where the margins are getting tighter and tighter and restaurants are closing sort of left, right and center, we end up compromising. But for me, you know, hospitality was always about that. It was about breaking bread. It was about all this amazing food and drink and coffees and booze and olives and stuff that had come in from around the globe and sitting around the table and spending time with each other and, and that as a as a backdrop is is kind of the point of being human so it's uh, it would be a shame to lose that and i think uh yeah the sale cargo alliance and what they're doing is a is a, is a brilliant example of keeping that in place i suppose um so are you planning and again i'm kind of uh, stitching you up here and making you commit but uh the kind of produce that you can now get are you now working with dar and going look we'd like more of this it's it kind of works as, a, as an ethos and as a story and would you like to see more stuff coming in under sale power I think we want to get wine in the future. That's something, something we want to add to our offering. So, you know, obviously we do big weddings for big numbers and obviously they always want to drink a lot at weddings. So to be able to introduce that and kind of have that as a bit of a package to offer. We've taken some of the olives from Dara as well. Yeah, they're great. A few, yeah. Um, we just kind of drain them and we kind of just marinate them in what we want to do. Get some orange and some rosemary. Nice. bits and pieces and then we can kind of dry them out we've yeah we've done quite a lot with the olives almonds we haven't had yet have we but we want no not yet but i guess what we haven't had a chance to do just because we're both really busy is just to show you the full product range that the producers have got really uh, and see yeah. what you're interested in and i was saying earlier to mark we're taking one of our boats to spain in uh, and portugal in october partly to 
go and see what else there is see down there. So You'll have to have the misfortune of having to try lots of uh, wine. Talking of which, actually, in that little gap we had just now, you opened a lovely bottle of wine. What are we drinking, Dara? Uh, this is a Fossil. This is uh, um, uh, an award-winning one from... Uh, um, that Anton from Schisto Wines brings in. Um, I couldn't do the full story uh, justice, but um, it is um, it is a wine that's grown on effectively like a wild vineyard. So there's a different kind of grape in each row, help to build in resistance from kind of um, kind of pests and diseases. And um, rather than use loads of finings, uh, it's just kind of left to settle for two or three months. Um, and I, I was saying to you earlier, I'm not a great white wine drinker, but this this is really nice. It's kind of like uh, very clear, particularly when it's wine. 38 degrees outside, and I'm yes, sort of and it's just come out of the fridge, slightly <laughs> melting. So uh, yeah, it's perfect. And is this just a sample, or are you bringing this in commercially now? Um, so we are, we have we've working with Schisto Wines to just get all the T's crossed and the I's dotted. So and Anton and Schisto Wines totally have an import business. They do all the bonding warehouse. It's all covered with HMRC and everything. We're just trying to work out how we, as the next level of the chain, can do it and still stay, um, kind of keep everyone happy legally. Yeah. So effectively, we're the couriers. So that's what we're setting up is a shop front where people can buy the wine. The money goes direct to Shisto. They deal with all of that. And we are then just delivering it. Like if you were getting some wine box and it would be a DPD courier or something. That's And we've chatted that through with trading standards and everything. We're just going slowly <laughs> to make sure we get everything right. Um, but yes, there is a backlog of wine waiting in Anton's warehouse that needs to be Amazing. unleashed. Amazing. One day I'm going to do a, 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 a podcast. You'll be very excited to hear uh, on the uh, the complexities of importing booze into the country and bonded warehouses and how all that works. Because I don't think the consumer would have any idea about it just what hard work is. absolutely bonkers. I mean, it's set up for somebody who's bringing in container loads of, yeah. of spirits or wines. If you're bringing in, I mean, Anton has, brings in wine by the barrel. And then he bottles it when he gets here. And the, the journey on the ship is partly what ages the wine. Um, he's had instances where a port has been like a barrel of wine. No, that we, no, doesn't work. Doesn't work. Yeah. You can't unload that here. Doesn't compute. And he has a bonded warehouse. Doesn't he? And he has all of that wow. set up. And they're like, no, no, that's that's what they did in the 18th century. We can't understand that. Yeah, so a lot of it is just cultural. Frustrating, yeah. Because um, a bottle of wine, say a bottle of wine's a euro, euro, pounds, pretty much, you know, getting towards parity anyway. But it uh, comes into the UK. So you think you can go to Spain or Portugal. You can buy a, a bottle of wine that's not too mm. bad for a pound. Straight away, bring it into the country. £2.14 is the duty on that bottle of wine. Yeah. And then 20% on the sale price. So yeah. you're up to, uh, what, £3.50? 15, so then you've got another 70p. So, so a, a bottle of wine that you pay for a pound in Portugal has to sell for four quid here just to cover the costs. And that's no transport costs and that's no profit whatsoever. So uh, yeah, everybody out there who's, uh, who's who's buying a bottle of wine for less than four quid realise that 95% of that is going to the tax man and very little of it is going to the person who grows the wine, which Definitely. is tragic. And I could talk about that for another hour, but people <laughs> A, would nod off and tune out and B, we would run out of time. So um, going back to, to you, Darren, a little bit about the kind of customers, is Dan a typical kind of uh, customers are you dealing much with with chefs or restaurants or is it mainly direct to the consumer uh, so what are you doing now and, and what do you want to start doing going forward well it's a little bit like with our, our community sailing work really if we find a group that we like and we get on with and it's easy to relate to then we make a connection and we just kind of keep that going so that's where we're at with uh, with dan and the herb kitchen really it's and it's it's nice to call by you know and it, it makes it all enjoyable um a large part, we, well, we've got a growing customer base now of the plastic-free shops. There's quite, a, quite, we've got about five on our books who take the big 30-litre fusties. Brighton, Worthing, um, we're talking to one in Lewis as well. Um, so that's kind of growing. But the, the core of it really is the individual customers. And what we try and say is buy your five-litre um, tub of olive oil. It's £45 if you buy it in advance, five, £50 when the ship's here. That feels like a lot of money to people, but if you break it down per litre for the quality that it is, and it is hard to make a comparison because the olive oil industry is a little bit mafioso in kind of the detail of what's actually in it, but we like to think it's a good value product. The idea is that you as an individual would then get together with two or three neighbours and split it into your own bottles. You're doing the bottling. You're covering the cost of the, the health and safety, all this kind of stuff, you know, and we transfer it to you. You're doing a bit of the work. And that's the core of our customer base, really. So after this gallant that just came in a couple of weeks ago, um, people collected their oil 
And then they were like, oh, can I get another one for, for my neighbours, for so-and-so, or they're coming back to you? Can we have another two boxes? Because word gets out. And that's what we're relying on a lot, really, is word of mouth. So in between deliveries now, you're holding some stock to help those people out who just want a bit here and there. Is yeah. that correct? Yeah, we've got some stock. It's a bit of a balance. If Ideally, the ship comes, it's all been pre-ordered, it gets collected and it's gone. Tick. Right. However, you need some stock because otherwise you haven't got the story. Um, oh, and when does the ship come back? Well, this is what we're already chatting. They're calling through at the end of September. We're just trying to work out if we've got the capacity uh, to kind of deal with that. The idea is to set up a regular spring, summer and autumn delivery. Okay. And they're not just coming into the country through you. There are other yous that they're working with? Or? Yeah. So they come up from Portugal. It's, it's a different schedule each time. But um, the general pattern is pick up olive oil in Portugal Um Go to Noirmoutier to drop off oil, pick up salt. Um, go to either Brittany or straight on to somewhere like Penzance or Falmouth. Uh, a little call into Poole and then to us and then around to Ramsgate and Netherlands. So there's a little circle. And then the bigger ships that are doing the Caribbean and call into Porto and Northern Europe might drop off some of their stuff and the smaller ships can then do the take it to the other ports. And the idea is, so again, traditionally would come into one port and be distributed by road, but the idea yeah. is to, to cut out the road as much as possible and Definitely. stop off as many ports as possible. Definitely, yeah. And there's room for other port allies to get on board. There's room for other smaller boats to get on board. I mean, there's issues about being commercially coded and all this kind of stuff. But effectively, a big boat can come in like Gallant, drop off loads of stuff. Loads of small boats can peel off from New Haven and distribute it to Eastbourne, Brighton, Rye. You know, they, it, it can be sort of carried on like that that's the cabotage basically love it well you come into pool well, that's my neck of the woods so uh yeah let me know when it's coming I'm, I'm, I'm if i had more time i'm going to try anyway but yeah with a bit of time it'd be lovely to get the, the I think end of september is when gallant's looking at coming board, back to really. pool yeah well, yeah well we'll definitely have a conversation I, I know plenty of restaurateurs in bournemouth so we should uh, we should definitely look at it it'd be amazing um but this feels like uh it's got to be a challenge to get the and, and I, I i hate to, to turn this into a commercial project because it's such a great concept uh but fundamentally if things don't you know make money then they tend to die ultimately mm. um so it, you know is this viable on a commercial perspective and, and and can it be scaled up and what would need to happen to turn this into uh to stop it being a sort of community supported niche and actually make a, a genuine difference to the environment and supply chain that is the challenge so um scaling up is partly if we could have more people there ready to collect when the ship comes in that makes it a lot more viable um, and makes it easier for us to buy. If we buy in for more volume, we can make the price come down. Um, it's also, though, about the the added extras you get. So it's not just about the the, the cost of the, the money made on the actual oil coming in. It's the other connections you make. So, for example, I said about having like locate productions, offering things, other volunteers coming and helping with us, um, building the profile of sailboat projects. So we sell our selling courses so we keep ourselves in business. All these things kind of go around together. Um, where we are getting to now is um, we want, we've got a good, really good model with New Haven Port and New Haven Marina, which gives us uh, a bit of more of a stable basis to look at the future uh, cargo deliveries and know what the costs are that are involved and how it will all work. So um, this last delivery with Gallant to New Haven uh, was a really good um, step up for us. So then go, right, now we know we can replicate this. Um, and what the real costs are, because sometimes you don't know to start with exactly what's involved. Um, so, yeah, it's we've just been doing a bit of a, a reflection and evaluation of this last trip and what we've learned from it. It feels like we're in a quite a good position to then make it actually do what it needs to do, which is bring in a bit of income for our community work. And could you ramp up supply if need be? So let's say a wholesaler got involved who wanted to distribute to restaurants and bars, for example, mm. uh, more likely than, than supermarkets, I guess. Yeah. Can you ramp up supply? Well, this is a whole conversation that we've been having with uh, Blue Schooner Company and New Dawn Traders. It's like, uh, how, how do we do this? Um, and that's what we're, we're working on right now, actually. How do we sort of make this happen for the next voyage? Um, it, I mean, logistically, th there's quite a lot 
to kind of get your head around. Yeah, usually, um, yeah, you've well with my brain. Usually. Are there more? Are there more boats available? Like, if so, if demand ramps up, you've mentioned three or four that seem to be you're using regularly. Are there a lot of other sailing vessels out there doing this that you could hook into potentially? Yeah, I mean, there are. Some of them are obviously doing lots of other stuff, um, doing like, like I said, like tour ship races and doing their own kind of. Uh, um, kind of cruises with passengers we're really keen to get our own sail cargo vessel so that um, say um, Gallant and other large boats regularly come into New Haven and dump off quite a lot of cargo we can then do the trans shipping um, either across to Dieppe there's quite a strong connection between New Haven and Dieppe and the different chambers of commerce or round to Ramsgate and doing some of that kind of coastal stuff um, the smaller scale stuff that a coast that we know and we can um, do s- shorter day trips with um, uh, community members helping crew it. That's the kind of model we want to work to. And uh, then the big ships, big ships can just turn up with loads of stuff and unload it and crack on. Um, so it's trying to work out a logistics model that kind of works for everyone, really. Yeah, so so big ship comes in, dumps it in one place. You yeah. then, through your sailing school, community projects, whatever, you know, yeah. Yeah, can, can take it around the coastline and deliver. So, for example, we've got um, New Haven Gig Rowing Club um, were interested in the idea of rowing produce up to Lewis because it's a tidal river. You can get there, but there's a A27 road bridge, so you can't get a big ship there anymore. Um, and that would be like a really amazing way of involving more people and a practical solution to get it up river to another another venue. Amazing. I love it. So you need a ship. Are you talking like one of these kind of, you know, big uh, tall ships, you know, 18th, 19th century no, kind of traditional things? Or what, what, what looking, are you looking for? What we've been looking at is something around a kind of like a 70 foot boat, one that um, uh, can be used for expeditions and passages for groups of people, uh, separate from sail cargo, but can also have like bunks folded up and have a good cargo space as well. Um, we're on the hunt. Seen anything? Um, yeah, we did see something in North Wales, um, which had been built for sail cargo, a steel boat with a gaff rig, which, so it looked, looked the business up top, but was easy to maintain on the whole. Um, but it, it did sell, which was good because we weren't ready, okay. but, um, was within the price range. We've got a kind of a, a business plan and a, um, a kind of, uh, a spreadsheet and everything ready about how it could work. So, um, but with, with, um, we're also into the idea of maybe if someone's got a vessel like that, that they might want to see come to life and be used a bit more, that we could manage. That's something we do with Jalapino. Um, she's owned by an individual, but we manage the boat. We have like a peppercorn lease. Nice. Uh, so there's other ways of doing it. All the boats are out there. They're all sat around there. It's just finding them, basically. Yeah, presumably the old style kind of uh, yeah ships that, 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 that transported cargo this way aren't in use usually although hopefully if the sail cargo alliance does its thing and gets more publicity and there's more demand hopefully they'll come back onto the water any but there might be one sat there in a port somewhere that you guys could utilize much better than it is at the moment presumably yeah totally and it doesn't have to be purpose specifically for cargo um there's lots of ways to kind of uh, make down below work really and is there funding available because it sounds like you know it's such a great idea that somebody should step in and support this i'm sure there's some private people who might go oh, that sounds like a great project but have you you've looked into financing presumably through the lottery we have i mean we we um about four years ago we got very close to a very big lottery funding application for about ninety thousand pounds and it sort of fell at the last hurdle which was one of the best things that could happen because we weren't ready but it made us come up with a business plan and think about it really seriously um we now four years on and having done quite a few cargo deliveries, feel a bit more ready for that. And that is part of the idea of this winter trip down to Spain and Portugal, meet the producers, but give a couple of us a bit of time away to actually make all of this work, really. And if people are willing to pay up front for the olive oil that they don't know an awful lot about until it's arrived, now they do, I think there's a bit more possibility to do a big crowdfunder mixed with maybe some grants to get our own vessel based in, in New Haven in Sussex. Uh, that can kind of further these aims. Amazing. Dan, do you think that um, there's a demand from this? You know, presumably lots of lots of chefs and lots of catering companies. Do you think that uh, you can join any dots and assist? Um, for sure, yeah. It's, um, it's too easy as chefs kind of have their everyday suppliers, these big kind of companies that kind of just rock up after placing a, an order, you know, 24 hours before. Um, I think it's just a matter of spreading word, which, you know, we're more than happy to do. Um, it's you know it's a great product so definitely I could see it kind of doing really well so bring more to us anyway for sure we can keep on using it 
as, as long as Dara doesn't put the price up, obviously. Then, yeah, uh, keep, you, it, keep, keep it, keep it what it is. Um, and 20% more yeah, for new people. Could, um, <laughs> could creep up a little bit. We'd still buy it. You know, we're loyal <laughs> customers. You can have a loyalty card. Thanks. Perfect. <laughs> yeah, buy, buy, buy 20, get... Uh, free olive of every liter. Get a free bottle of wine. Get one <laughs> yeah, yeah. free. Um, I think you've got perspective as well, Dara, and uh, you know, the, the, the sea can be perceived uh, as a divider or as a connector, I suppose. Uh, what, what do you mean by that? Well, right now we're drawing up, pulling up the drawbridges, aren't we? Um, we live on an island. The, the, the sea is what connects us to the, to, the, to the rest of the world, really. I mean, traditionally, um, the areas we're talking about, like Brittany and like uh, um, around to Noirmoutier and, and Portugal, uh, these are all areas that used to trade by sea all the time and the sea is totally what connected them. Um, it's actually not that far away. Um, and um, I, I think that we should just pursue that more rather than trying to kind of close everything down. Otherwise, we're just going to be, you know, eating groats. <laughs> <laughs> How long does it take to uh, sail down to Portugal from here? How long is a piece of string? Um, so you can leave, you can leave Brighton right. and be in La Coruña in five days on a, on a sort of modern yacht. Um, coming back up can be a bit harder because they're generally northerly winds. So it can take a good two to three weeks. It all depends really on the, on the conditions. Um, the trick is in scheduling it. Um, and uh, so we just came to straight. It's raining. Yeah, it's raining. God, it's we weren't raining. expecting that. Amazing. It was melting and now we've got, uh, <laughs> we're going to have some thunder. But yeah, the trick is in the scheduling. So ideally, um, you allow three weeks. If it takes two, then you do a bit of maintenance because you got there a bit early or something like that. And then it keeps the the, uh, the suppliers and the customers like like Will um, and Dan happy because uh, they're getting their stuff on time. Yeah, perfect. Okay. <laughs> and you've got an amazing uh, table of produce here. So we've tried some bits. I've tried some lovely, uh, some some uh, some olives, some olive oil, some salt. I've tried some wine. We've got almonds. So yeah, clearly a, a, a good range of uh, of stuff coming. And Dan's bought some bits as well. So we're about to snack. But uh, amazing story. I could I could carry on, but we're kind of out of time. So if people want to find out more uh, about uh, the project and what you do and offer support, where's the best place for them to go? If people have a look at sailboatproject.org, uh, you can also just Google uh, Sail Cargo Southeast and we'll come up there. Um, and if you want to find out about uh, the Sail Cargo Alliance, just, just search them as well. They'll come up on any search. Amazing. And if they want to try the project easier, Dan, come to one of your events, I suppose. But you, you, so you, you don't just do private events. You mentioned you run these, uh, these kind of story nights and stuff like that in other people's venues. Where's the best place for people to go to find out what you're up to? Um, Instagram. We're quite visual colorful um all the foods you, you can you know, see what we do on at the herb kitchen or website um at the hyphen herbkitchen.com um yeah come to one of our events um they're fun that's kind of where we don't make any money but we love to do and then the rest of the time we're kind of busy away in the kitchen getting ready for his and hers weddings or private dinner parties so yeah amazing where we are. nobody's doing this for uh for money i'm sure we've all got to survive no. haven't we? but the world of uh, food and drink and hospitality i think is the point of our time on planet earth isn't it so uh, exactly. share we'll just, the love yeah exactly we'll just enjoy it uh gentlemen thank you so much for spending the time it's hugely appreciated it's been uh, an eye-opener and educational and dara will uh, we'll definitely chat more about yeah how i can uh, sample more of your produce but thank you for sparing the time thank you thanks mark So there you have it. You have reached the end of another episode of the Humans of Hospitality podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please go and visit our website, humansofhospitality.co.uk for the show notes and extra episodes and information. And whilst you're there, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter and to receive free materials all about the humans behind our incredible industry. Lastly, if you could subscribe, rate and review this podcast, you will be massively helping me out and it would be hugely appreciated. Thank you so much. We'll be launching another podcast in just seven days time. Cheers. Cheers.